the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The following program was pre-recorded, and the views expressed do not necessarily represent those of this station or its management. Welcome to Education Nation, where we tackle the biggest issues in American education. School is now in session. Here are your hosts, Headmaster Rebecca Hagstrom and co-host Mark Durkin. Thank you for joining us here on Education Nation. I'm your host, Rebecca Hagstrom. I'm joined in studio once again by executive producer of Education Nation and my co-host, Mark Dippen. So back in August, if you uh, listened to our show, we spent an entire one focusing on the First Amendment's Freedom of Religion Exercise Clause. We highlighted freedom of religion uh, as it is understood by our founding fathers as a given, God-given right. I believe we even had Senator Han on that show, if I remember correctly. Yes, we did. We read several quotes from the founders that made it clear that it was unfathomable to them that those exercising their God-given right of religious exercise would one day be faced with the possibility of a mounting pressure to keep their exercise confined to their own private lives and not in public. Now, just uh, to again clarify in regards to some of the things we've covered in the past, we're talking about a new phrase that became popular earlier this decade. It's called the freedom of worship. And the change in language really began during the first year of former President Obama's first term in office. And just a few years ago, Hillary Clinton, she plainly called for a, quote, deep-seated cultural codes and religious beliefs to be changed, end of quote, by the government so that women can have complete access to reproductive health care laws. So Mm. the shift in language, I mean, it really sounds innocent, but as definitions pertaining to class protections have extended from race and biological sex now to a person's behavior, it has become increasingly difficult for people of faith to really live out their faith outside of their homes and places of worship. Mm -hmm. And to be clear, the freedom of worship is the argument that faith should remain a private affair relegated to personal activities or weekend worship services. Step outside of the four walls of a home or a house of worship and robust protection of religious freedom has ended for many business owners. So how did we get to where we are today where that's an issue? And it really began with the establishment of legally protected classes on the basis of race and biological sex. And establishing those legally protected classes has always been understood as merely protecting people who are at a higher risk of discrimination. Those at risk were characterized by, like I said, race and biological sex. We have some really important history in this area. One of the examples that we are all familiar with is in 1954, a large portion of our U.S. schools were racially segregated as a result of the 1896 case, Plessy versus Ferguson, where segregated public facilities were constitutional as long as black and white facilities were equal to each other. And obviously, they saw that as a problem, which is a good thing. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And in the mid-20th century, civil rights groups were, they were setting up 
the legal and the political challenges that were going on with racial segregation. So what happened in 1954? Well, Oliver Brown, the parent of a black student, was denied access to Topeka, Kansas's white schools. And Brown claimed that the city's black and white schools were not equal, nor could they ever be. So what did Brown do? Well, he appealed all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States. And in Brown versus Topeka Board of Education, one of the greatest mm-hmm. SCOTUS decisions yes. of the 20th century, yep. the court held that racial segregation of children in public schools violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. Mm. And well, it should. That absolutely, was good. Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And the court really stated that the 14th Amendment, it guarantees equal education, whereas in quoting from several psychological studies, and they, and they did this review while they were uh, going over the case, is that separating children on the basis of race had created really low racial self-esteem mm-hmm. and dangerous inferiority complexes that was affecting uh, you know, the children's ability to learn. Mm-hmm. So the court concluded that even if the facilities were equal, okay, between black and white schools, racial segregation in schools is inherently equal. Mm -hmm. It's equal, rather. Unequal. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's that inferiority complex for sure. Mm -hmm. So in the context of public schools, Plessy versus Ferguson was overruled, and the states were ordered to integrate their schools with all deliberate speed. And Mm -hmm. this gave way just a few years later to the court ruling in Cooper versus Aaron, that was another landmark case, Mm -hmm. that states were constitutionally required, based again off the 14th Amendment, to implement SCOTUS's integration orders. Mm -hmm. So what was the result of that? Widespread racial integration in the South uh, was definitely on its way uh, by the late 60s and early 70s. Equal protection ruling in Brown versus Board had extended also into other areas of the law, and into the political arena as well. So really, Brown versus Board, this 1954 case, it was a real watershed moment in the mm-hmm. struggle for racial equality in America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, they're still dealing with that today. You know, we we hear a lot about inadvertent racial seg- right. segregation that happens, and there's a lot of intentionality in trying to resegregate schools in certain exactly. parts of our country, especially in some of the inner cities. But so that's kind of the brief history on the protected class uh, that's surrounding race. And then we have kind of a whole separate line of history within the historical protection of the based on the biological sex. So the women's suffrage movement. And that began in the 18 in 1848 with the first women's rights convention. Women began to realize that in order to achieve reform, they needed to win the right to vote and the movement. Uh, has been characterized as having been a courageous and persistent campaign that involves tens of thousands of women and men that lasted 72 years. It's a long haul. It's a long haul. On August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution granted American women the right to vote. And as a protected class, a 1972 law called Title IX was signed into law by then-President Richard Nixon to help prevent gender discrimination in the U.S. educational athletic system. Mm-hmm. The law gives each of the two biological sexes equal rights to educational programs, activities, and federal financial assistance. 
And now these two examples right here, the women's suffrage movement and then Brown versus Board, I mean, these are well-known examples of race and biological uh, sex class protections that came about in the 20th mm-hmm. century. And as these class protections were aimed at granting equal rights to persons as they were created by God, mm-hmm. recent legal class protections now, they began to accommodate persons by their behaviors, mm-hmm. specifically their, their sexual behavior, and the declaration of identity. Exactly. So this class of citizens now that has been on the forefront of our country's political mind is the citizens protected on the basis of sexual orientation. And while biological gender and race are immutable, that means un- unchangeable, um, and I know there's arguments that you can change your gender now, but if you talk to the doctor, You really cannot change your gender. You can kind of look different. Bone structure, um, red blood cells, just being two areas. Yes, so it really, physically, you are are still not completely changed. So those are immutable, but um, on the basis of LGBTQ, that type of thing, that is all based upon behavior. And so this has been kind of the march in recent years. And back in 2013, 15 years after then, President Bill Clinton amended an executive order including sexual orientation as a protected class. So he just added it into the federal government's equal opportunity and employment policy. Marriage between same-sex couples became legal in the SCOTUS decision in Obergefell versus Hodges, and I think that was back in 2015, wasn't it? That is correct, yes. And that ruling was the culmination, really, of four landmark rulings in expanding LGBT rights between 1996 and 2015. The SCOTUS invalidated a Colorado state law banning protected class recognition based on homosexuality. And I believe that there were a lot of states that tried to do that. And um, the court struck down sodomy laws nationwide um, and Section 3 of the Defense of Marriage Act and made some um, made same sex marriage legal nationwide. So that again was a landmark ruling in 2015. And prior to that too, there were many states that were trying to amend marriage, this Defense mm-hmm. of Marriage Act, to their state constitutions, and that just right. backfired. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So this is the first time then we have a protected class on the basis of behavior versus a, an immutable, unchangeable feature of a human being, such as race or biological gender. So at the start of the decade in 2000. 2010, the Obama administration included gender identity among the classes protected. So now going from homosexuality to gender identity among the classes protected against discrimination under the authority of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And this same group ruled in 2012 against gender identity-based employment discrimination because it's a form of sex discrimination. That's how they justified it. In 2016, Obama administration declared sweeping protections for transgender students under Title IX to use the bathrooms that aligned with their gender identity. Um, This would be considered the student's sex when it came to federal law. So in other words, they interpreted Title IX when the word gender shows up in there for equal protection for boys and girls. They reinterpreted the view of that term the way it was written at that time to include gender identity, which has not been brought before the Supreme court and certainly is arguably going to undermine the whole notion of Title IX in the first place, right. which was meant to equal a playing field between boys and girls mm-hmm. in all realms of schooling. So in February 2017, Trump rescinded that Title IX transgender interpretation at the federal level, and it's still unclear what will happen really 
at the state level Mm -hmm. as a result of that, because the Obama administration sent out that letter to all of the school districts across all of America and encouraging them to reinterpret Title IX in the way they were desiring to interpret it. Right. And what gets a little murky, too, is that there's a letter from the Office of Civil Rights from the Trump administration that talks about this this overturning in February. Mm-hmm. But it also then says that there are some policies in place that, you know, are in place to prevent discrimination. And when you click on that link, it takes you back to the very document that was released by the Obama administration. So you do so, really wonder what they're trying to promote. <laughs> right, right. So it's still early. Mm-hmm. I mean, that was in February. We're not even a year yet into the administration, but it's something to keep an eye on for sure. Right, right. You know, when groups of people are rewarded with increasing privileges as a protected class, well, specifically on their actions and behaviors, those that wish to freely exercise their religious faith, they'll enjoy less freedoms if they disagree with, say, the agenda of the protected class based off of behaviors, Mm -hmm. even to the point where the law, you know, may force you to engage in advocacy on their behalf. And Mm so there have been some instances just in the last couple of years Mm -hmm. uh, in which, you know, Christians have been penalized for public expressions of faith. And which is protected under the Constitution, by the way. Right. The First Mm -hmm. Amendment, the Mm -hmm. Freedom of Religious uh, Clause. Exactly. Mm And so we're we're talking about business owners specifically. And one company, actually, that was in the news quite a bit back in 2015 uh, was a bakery uh, that was run by uh, Melissa Klein and her husband, Aaron. It was uh, called Sweet Cakes by Melissa. And in 2013, a a same-sex couple had filed a civil rights complaint against the Kleins because the Kleins declined to bake a cake for a same-sex wedding ceremony exercising and citing their First Amendment right of uh, freedom of religious exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, in 2013 at that time, what's important to understand, and this is before Obergefell versus mm-hmm. Hodges, mm-hmm. okay, same-sex marriage was not yet legal in the state of Oregon. Hmm. So two years later, we fast forward now to 2015, and an Oregon administrative law judge ordered the Kleins at the state court levels to pay the couple damages in excess of $135,000 for what was termed emotional, mental, and physical suffering. So the ruling was a message that was sent by the government in Oregon, an attempt to, quote, rehabilitate or re-educate Christian businesses. And it's important to note that since that, uh, that fine was levied, the clients have closed down hmm. their business. Yeah, that's pretty sad. So interesting that they would actually use those terms. The judge did in the ruling, rehabilitate or re-educate. Was that actually that's used in I, the that's ruling? That's what I saw in the research. My Absolutely. goodness, that's very interesting um, that they would have that statement. That's really blatant, especially in light of the fact that the law hadn't even been passed yet. So they were they were basically ruling on the basis of a new law that wasn't in effect at the time that they chose not to be a part of that ceremony. If I remember correctly, too, didn't that family serve cakes to them in other situations? I might be getting this mixed up with the case of the florist. I know that the I know big... it's the case of the florist for sure, but yeah. I'm not sure about okay. the bakery. But I just know that there's an issue there where, where it really was about the ceremony itself that they were having the problem. Right. And the general consensus, though, mm-hmm. amongst Christian business owners has been, we will serve, you know. Mm-hmm. Yes. We're not here to discriminate. Right. It's just the calling to go into an actual marriage um, ceremony. Right. A demonstration, mm-hmm. an event that actually forces or compels us to agree with speech that we don't agree with. Right. Right. That's an important distinction. It is. Mm-hmm. Very, very important. And we'll do that again uh, a little later on in the program. Um, another shop uh, called Masterpiece Cake, Cake Shop in Colorado. 
Um, the Colorado Civil Rights Commission ordered the baker of that business, Jack Phillips, to violate his Christian beliefs and use his artistry to celebrate, as we were mentioning, homosexual unions. Mm-hmm. Now, consider this quote from the state commissioner in Colorado. Her name was Diane Rice. She likened Christians to slave owners and Nazis. Hmm. And here's what she said. This is a direct quote. She said, quote, Freedom of religion and religion has been used to justify all kinds of discrimination throughout history, whether it be slavery, whether it be the Holocaust. I mean, we can list hundreds of situations where freedom of religion has been used to justify discrimination. And to me, it is one of the most despicable pieces of rhetoric that people can use to use their religion to hurt others. Hmm. And isn't that amazing to to come compare it to slave owners and Nazis. I mean, right. there's they're talking about somebody who didn't want to serve a cake at a wedding ceremony. Absolutely. There's lots of bakers out there. You can't put not serving a cake at a wedding ceremony in the same category as being a slave owner or a Nazi. They're two totally different things. Business owners have the right to refuse service to anyone that they choose not to serve. Absolutely. um, Based on their constitutional right as a private business. So we are uh, already ready for a a short break, and this has been kind of a heady segment here and lots Lots to to take in. Exactly. Um, When we return, we're going to shift gears and take a look at and discuss the Trump administration's landmark decision to issue guidance interpreting religious liberty protections in federal law just the way it is meant to be as a result of congressional passage back in 1993, the RIFRA Act. So you won't want to miss this discussion. Stay tuned, and we will be right back. Well, welcome back to Education Nation. I'm your host, Rebecca Hagstrom, and I'm joined in studio once again, of course, with executive producer and co-host Mark Durkin. And we're talking about the expansion of class protections beyond race and biological sex to that which now includes individual behavior, and then how those behaviors have forced people of faith to choose between obeying the dictates of their faith, which are behavior-based also, or the law. And that really is in direct violation of the RIFRA Act, which was signed into law with much fanfare by President Bill Clinton. And RIFRA stands for the Religious Freedom and Restoration Act. And I believe that was in 1993, if I remember correctly. (laughs) And so that seems to have kind of gotten forgotten in all of this discussion. And it's important for our listeners to know that that is current law of the land in the United States of America. It is. And for as tense of a subject as this is, when we talk about, you know, behaviors and, you know, whether people are born that way or, you know, it's been a very hot debate. It's been very emotionally charged. And we just hear on Education Nation, we're not advocating for bullying or unequal treatment. We're just simply stating that people of faith, they're committed to serving all people. Because to do otherwise, I mean, it's really to denigrate people that are created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. We do unto others as we would have them do unto us. Mm-hmm. So regardless, though, of what people in the country believe as they pertain to LGBTQ issues, whether they agree or not with a Christian baker or a florist losing their business, people of faith, whether as an individual or a business owner, are simply not willing to engage in ceremonies and practices, behaviors specifically, that would violate their deep-seated religious beliefs. And so that poses the question, well, why? Mm -hmm. Because religious beliefs are unshakable convictions that are given by God, and that calls for obedience. 
demonstrated by behaviors that are acceptable to God versus behaviors that are unacceptable to mm-hmm. God. Exactly. And before the break, we discussed just a few of the cases that do involve business owners, persons of faith, when they choose to not use their artistic talents to participate in same-sex marriage ceremonies. And they ended up facing some significant personal losses as a result. Yes, Those losses came from judicial rulings that we are about to see were actually violations of these citizens' constitutional rights. And last week, President Trump instructed Attorney General Jeff Sessions to issue guidance interpreting the principles of religious liberty protections in federal law. And earlier you had mentioned the 1993 piece of legislation that President Clinton signed into law, the the RIFRA. And this release by Attorney General Sessions at the order of President Trump is really echoing a lot of what was written and had received and garnered congressional support. So we want to go ahead and spend the last uh, few minutes of the show today just really talking about some and highlighting some of those provisions. And we plan next week on Education Nation to go much deeper into that document. Mm-hmm. But just go ahead. Before you go, I, before yeah. you start, I just want to just remind our listeners, too, that it is Congress that is supposed to be the ones passing the laws. Yes. So we get used to talking about Supreme Court cases, and they're, right. they're foundational. But... The laws are supposed to be passed through Congress and right. not through the Supreme, Supreme Court. Court. And the reason so why the Supreme Court is getting the cases, too, is because these things started with executive order from mm-hmm. the executive branch, right. which is also right. unconstitutional. So things are not working as they were intended right now. The balance of powers, mm-hmm. exactly. So one of the, um, <clears throat> in regards to the federal law protections for religious liberty in this document, the, the document went on to talk about the principles of religious liberty. And as we've discussed extensively concerning the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, religious liberty is a foundational principle of enduring importance here in America. And this idea was really garnered from James Madison. Uh, He had a very famous writing titled The Memorial and the Remonstrance Against Religious Assessments. Okay, And he stated in there, quote, The free exercise of religion is in its nature an unalienable right. This is meaning endowed Mm -hmm. by God Mm -hmm. that cannot be taken away by government Mm -hmm. because the duty owed to one's creator is precedent, both in order of time and in degree of obligation to the claims of civil society, end of quote. Mm -hmm. So unlike much of the freedom of worship rhetoric that has come from uh, the progressive side over the last decade, religious liberty is not merely a right to personal religious beliefs on or even to worship in a sacred place, it also encompasses religious observance and practice. Mm -hmm. So no one should ever be forced to choose between living out his or her faith and complying with the law. So the Attorney General, he issued the Memorandum on Federal Law Protections for Religious Liberty, including 20 principles in this document, okay, Mm -hmm. that will guide administrative agencies and executive departments within the federal government in assuring that religious observance is reasonably accommodated in all government activity. So this week, like we mentioned earlier, we want to discuss three of those principles, and I'll let you go ahead and start Mm -hmm. with the first one. Exactly, and then we're going to cover more next week. So one, the freedom of religion um, is a fundamental right of paramount importance, expressly protected by federal law, as we said. And in addition to being enshrined in the text of our Constitution, which is important, religious liberty is in numerous federal statutes. It is a fundamental right. Yes. And it really does encompass the right of all Americans 
to exercise their religions freely, religion freely, without being coerced to satisfy a religious test as a qualification for public office, for instance. Yes. And this is actually found under Article 6 of the Constitution. We have seen this constitutional right of the freedom of religious exercise and government activity breached several times in 2017. Yes. Most notably and recently, uh, Notre Dame law professor Amy Coney Barrett was nominated by President Trump for the judgeship of the U.S. Seventh Circuit Court. And she was on the receiving end of a religious test, which is, as I said, um, completely against the Article 6 of the Constitution from Senator Dianne Feinstein, Democrat of California. Mm-hmm. Feinstein actually said to her, quote, And I think in your case, Professor, when you read your speeches, the conclusion one draws is that the dogma lives loudly within you. And that's of concern when you come to big issues that large numbers of people have fought for years in this country, unquote. So clearly she is stating that the fact that she is, I think, a strong Catholic, I believe, that she's basically saying that it is not okay for you to be a judge because you're coming at the issues from the perspective of the fact that you are a Catholic woman. What she's concerned about, too, is that Feinstein has been a a, a real stalwart when it comes to abortion rights, Mm -hmm. of course, Roe versus Wade. And this whole debate really only intensifies because much of the language we hear about that today is, is when does life start? Mm -hmm. And, you know, what you hear from the progressives is, is that a fetus is not viable as a human life. And that would really run contradictory to the 14th Amendment when you consider the founders, who many of them were Christian and believed the Bible to be an inspiring source to go to the divine for the guidance of civil society, mm-hmm. okay? If that's the case, then they would agree with what the scripture says about the fact that God knew us before we were knit in our mother's womb. So that's where that tension can come because the Catholics have been on the front line as far as speaking out against abortion. And then you see where the senator would come in and be rather concerned. Mm-hmm. So what you're saying really is that Senator Feinstein's biggest concern about having this woman in the judgeship is that she would not vote to support abortion rights if it was ever, or not vote, Correct. But she, that she would not rule to support abortion rights if it ever came across her desk. Correct. Okay. And interestingly, that she would use, interesting that she would use a religious test then to try to push her out of that opportunity to be the judge. That's right. So, That's right. all right. And we've got a few more that you're going to share. Yes. Another principle uh, that was listed in this document is that the freedom of religion extends to persons and organizations. And what the document stated is that the Free Exercise Clause protects not just persons, but persons collectively exercising their religion through churches or other religious denominations, religious organizations, schools, Mm -hmm. private associations, and even businesses. Mm -hmm. Which is very helpful for us to remember. Being a a headmaster of a private school, I do believe that we should be able to continue exercising the faith element of our school the way we would see fit. So that's actually really encouraging to hear that. And another principle that was listed in the document is that government may not restrict acts or abstentions because of the beliefs they display. A more specific definition on this principle is that government may not target persons or individuals because of their religion. Government may not exclude religious organizations as such from secular aid programs, at least when the aid is not being used for explicitly religious activities such as worship or proselytization. For example, the Supreme Court has held that if government provides reimbursement for scrap tires, Mm 
to replace child playground surfaces. It may not deny participation in that program to religious schools as long as that's not going, as we said earlier, to proselytization. And the case that comes back to mind is the Supreme Court ruling in favor in the Trinity Lutheran versus Comer case. That school was able to use public funds to resurface their mm-hmm. playground. Because which, of- which has far-reaching implications for, for private schools when it comes to voucher programs and choice programs as well across the nation. So this is very encouraging to see that President Trump asked uh, President uh, Jeff Sessions to do this. So thanks for joining us today, and we will see you all next week on Education Nation.